If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Luke and chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 22 through 30 in our time together this morning. Luke 13, 22 through 30, as we continue our study through uh, this gospel. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke 13, starting in verse 22. The Holy Spirit says, He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin stand outside to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then he will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Many years ago, perhaps you remember, the Oprah Winfrey channel aired a seven-part documentary series called Belief, where she traveled to different places around the world to explore religious practices of several different religions, uh, including Islam and Hinduism, atheism, and Christianity. Now, what made it somewhat unique was that rather than interview like religious leaders or experts, she spoke to you know ordinary people who uh, shared with her what they believe and how that belief affects their life. Now, what I remember most vividly and what struck me the most was not the the documentary itself when it was released, but an article that was written by Diana Bass at the Washington Post and how she articulated uh, the basic point of the show. And what was the point? Simply uh, what our society tends to believe when it comes to religion, right? That all roads essentially lead to the same place or they go to the same end. I want, you to, I want to read a portion of her article for you. I want you to listen closely to what she says. She says, quote, The show reveals how religion itself is shifting how we are living through a period of intense spiritual democratization. Across the planet, people are taking responsibility for their own versions of meaning and in the process are remaking faith in ways that are more inclusive, more personal, more connected to the natural world, and more attentive to their community. Belief narrates this often ignored but startling story. The age of top-down religion is over. That age is being replaced by an age in which even people who faithfully maintain distinctive religious identities are engaging in do-it-yourself spiritual journeys that often lead in remarkable similar directions of love, healing, and justice towards a god or gods close at hand. As people make religion for themselves today, she says, they're replacing adherence to fixed doctrine with personal power or spiritual experience to transform their lives. The shift amounts to a storming of heaven and dragging the holy here to earth. All around the world, people are discovering that God or the gods or the goddess 
or the spirit of awe is nearer than has often been taught, and that the divine can be accessed by anyone anywhere. Indeed, every person has a responsibility for his or her own spiritual life. In every faith tradition, in every corner of the globe, men and women are discovering that faith is an encounter of love and that human beings can trust themselves to find God and grace wherever the sacred might be discerned, end quote. Anyone who knows even a little about Oprah would not be surprised at all to learn that a show she starred in and produced about religion amounts to nothing but affirmation that all religions are the same, and it doesn't really matter what you choose. Oprah isn't unique in this, of course. We live in a culture that is increasingly relativistic, which means it has abandoned notions that there can be absolute truth. And in fact, you can make your own truth. This is what culture says. Ours is a society that is also pluralistic, which means that all beliefs are equally valid because they all lead to the same place. And here's the thing about that. The belief that says all roads lead to heaven can be synchronized with almost all those other religions. The idea that you just need to be a good and sincere person and balance the scales of life to where your good outweighs your bad, and this will get you to heaven or paradise or nirvana or wherever, meshes with nearly every religion in some way. All except for one. This text before us this morning reminds us that Jesus makes a claim of exclusivity. It reminds us that not all roads lead to salvation. It reminds us that the gospel is simultaneously inclusive and exclusive. It reminds us of what Jesus will say in the fourth gospel, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes or is reconciled to God unless it is what? Through him. All roads do not lead to God. There is one road, and it is through Jesus who is God's Christ. But that isn't the only theme you noticed when we read this passage, is it? Along with the stress that Jesus is the only way to salvation and fullness, Jesus reminds us of something that he's been reminding us over and over and over again recently in Luke's gospel, which is that the time to respond is short, and thus we must not delay. So let's walk through this and see. The text begins with a reminder, reminder of where Jesus is headed. You may recall that way back in 951, a new section of Luke began where we were told that Jesus commenced his journey towards Jerusalem where he would be lifted up, okay, taken up, meaning that he would be crucified. So since 951, we have been on the road with Jesus towards the cross. Jesus is under divine imperative to go and be rejected by men and be crucified in place of sinful humanity to the extent that Everything from 951 onward is under the shadow of the cross. And this text is no different. Well, as Jesus is making his way through uh, some towns and villages he's teaching, someone asked him a question, and it's a good one, isn't it? They asked, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So in essence, this is pretty straightforward. They want to know if only a small number of people will be saved in the end. Will many people be saved or only a few people be saved? And this is a great question, right? And it's probably one that you want to have answered yourself, right? Now, the questioner isn't identified, are they? We don't know if they, even if they're a man or a woman. But it's likely that it's someone who's been following Jesus for some time. Notice they call him Lord. And it seems that Jesus' teaching leading up to this point has made an impression on him or her. And how could it not? And Jesus said, he has said, yes, some pretty tough 
things in the text that we've looked at in Luke lately, hasn't he? So perhaps the questioner has concluded that surely not many people will be saved if what Jesus has been saying is true. And how does Jesus answer the question? Will many people be saved or a few? It's kind of like what we saw a few weeks ago when someone brought up to Jesus. Do you remember? They came up to Jesus. They said there was a recent incident when Pilate killed some Galileans who were offering sacrifice and their bloods mixed with the sacrifice. And they wondered, are those Galileans more sinful than other Galileans, right? <coughs> Excuse me. And they asked Jesus that question. And do you remember what Jesus said there? He said, I tell you no, but you repent. He redirected the attention to what mattered most. He said, don't worry about them. Worry about whether or not you have repented because some disaster could befall you at any time. And we want to know the answer to the question posed in verse 23, don't we? I know I, I do, but, but Jesus isn't interested in that question because it missed the forest for the trees. So he does what, you know, I call pulling a roddy, Rowdy Roddy Piper on us, right? Just when we think we have the answers, he changes the question. So the questioner asks, will a lot of people be saved or only a few? And Jesus says, you strive to enter through the narrow door. In other words, don't worry. This is a key to this text, okay, what I'm about to say. Don't worry about how many people will be in heaven. Worry about whether you will be there yourself. See, they want to know the amount. But Jesus wants them to be more concerned with if they will be present at the great banquet at the end of the age. It's none of your concern, he says in essence, how many people are permitted to end eternity with God. It is your concern to ensure that you are one of them. You see? But what of the fact that Jesus calls salvation a narrow door? What, what implications are there for this descriptor? There are many, right? Consider the fact that Jesus is calling for his audience and us, this is a word you might underline or make note of, to strive to enter through the door which is narrow. And you see that word strive? It's the Greek word agnizomai. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Agnizomai. It's where we get the word agony or agonize. This is the only time Luke uses this word and it is a word used during this time, in this context, for athletic contests. It carries the idea of tense exertion, a passionate struggle, a contending for a prize, and a constant striving towards a goal. That's all packed in this word that's translated strive. This does not mean, of course, that Jesus is saying that salvation is accomplished through human effort or works. So he's saying the picture here is clearly that Jesus is the one who is sovereign over the door of salvation. Yes? He is clear that he is the one who opens the door and closes the door and that in fact he is the door that one must pass through in order to be saved. So he isn't saying one must strive or struggle to be saved. Do you see? He is saying that one who is saved by him strives intensely as they follow him. He is saying that to follow him in this life is hard. He is saying that salvation is through him alone and that changes how one lives in the world. Rather than striving for oneself on the basis of one's own perceived goodness, the follower of Jesus lives in light of what is to come. And to live in light of what is to come is to live differently than those who don't know him. 
To be a sojourner, to be a stranger in the world is tough, isn't it? So, so we see here and all over the Bible, grace is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. Christians, therefore, should work hard, strive, and toil, but we do, not, do, we do so not for grace, but from grace. Because of the gospel, we're motivated not by guilt, but by gratitude. Jesus is telling us something church growth gurus don't want to, and that is this. Following Jesus is hard. Do you know that? This Christianity thing isn't supposed to be easy. Jesus never says it is. And life doesn't get easier, have you found this? And less complicated when you decide to give your allegiance to Jesus. And while some may want to pull a bait and switch and say being a Christian is not at all hard, Jesus is constantly saying to people, you need to count the cost before you follow me, because there is a cost. And see, this is the paradox of the gospel. Salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. Jesus says his followers must take up their crosses, but he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So which is it? Yes, right? To be saved, we must repent and believe and give our allegiance to Jesus, and we are thus rescued by the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus alone, and no credit is given to us. We did nothing. As Jonathan Edwards said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which made it necessary. But once Jesus saves us, we go from walking the wide road with the rest of the world to the narrow road, which leads to a narrow door because Jesus doesn't mean to save us and say, okay, now do whatever you want. He saves us so that we can become new people with new affections and new devotions and new priorities and new ways of living in the world. Jesus saves us, and we evidence that salvation through our striving, and that striving is necessarily difficult. It has to be, right? And just think about it. If we are hopelessly, so hopelessly lost that it took a move of God through the incarnation and the death of God in the flesh for us to be saved, that means our remaking isn't just a one-time act where we wake up the next day and we're completely different. Rather, when we come to Christ, initially repent and believe, this sets off a whole life of followership and striving towards Christ-likeness. It's slow and it's a challenging process, but it's worth it, isn't it? It's like, you know what it's like? It's like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground, cultivated and watered, and manured, and it breaks through the ground, and it grows and bears fruit. You know what it's like? It's like leaven making its way through a lump of dough, being kneaded slowly, arduously, until our hands hurt, and getting our hands dirty until the leaven permeates the whole thing. Now again, consider the fact that the door is narrow. This means that you must come in the right way, yes? And since Jesus is sovereign over the door, then he gets to define the terms of what living in light of his rescue looks like or how one gets through the narrowness of the door. Haven't you ever squeezed through a door or an entryway or a path where you had to contort or go sideways in order to enter? In those cases, you didn't get to define entry. You had to bring yourself in line with entry as it was. You know, what came to my mind in thinking about this is there's an entrance to the church at the nativity in Bethlehem. And this door is called the door of humility because it is so low 
that visitors have to bend down or crouch to make it through the entrance. If you wished, if you went up to that door and you said, I wish this was wider or taller, if you choose not to crouch down, your preferences wouldn't alter the facts, would they? You simply wouldn't enter in. That's just the way the door is. To go in, you have to do it the right way. And so it is with the narrow door of salvation. In his book, uh, Living Wisely with the Church Fathers, Christopher Hall compares what we're talking about to Roman soldiers. And Roman soldiers were tattooed when they joined the Roman legions. He says, So also Christians by faith bear the brand of the crucified and risen Christ and are expected to act accordingly through the power of the Spirit. He goes on, did the tattoo a Roman soldier gladly received as he entered the legions immediately automatically transfer the ability to fight well as a soldier? Obviously not. Every Roman soldier had to learn through strenuous effort how to thrust well with a sword and at what specific target, how to maintain ranks during battle, how to survive in rugged terrain. Tough training lay ahead before the meaning of the tattoo and the skill set of the behavior of the soldier matched. A similar dynamic, he says, is true of the Christian. To live a good life, the church fathers contended, involves strenuous effort fueled by grace. The fathers understood that vigorous training is not divorced from God's grace, but empowered by God's grace. You see? This is what's at work here. Jesus is the only door of salvation, so if we're to be saved at all, we must come from, it must come from the gracious hand of Jesus and not our effort. But see, once we're thus saved through Jesus, this sets the beginning of a whole life conforming to his image. And that is necessarily hard because killing sin is hard, isn't it? Living less for ourselves and more for our neighbors is hard. Being sojourners in a world that is set against Christ and His kingdom is counterintuitive to our fallen hearts and flesh. So why would it be easy? And this striving doesn't end, end until the end of our life, does it? If the goal is to love God, let me ask you this. We could, we could agree that the goal is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself, yes? That's the goal. Have you ever done that for one whole second perfectly in your life? No, so then we strive, yes? And we don't stop until Christ calls us home. And some imagine that becoming a Christian is the entry point for fulfillment in other things. Like Jesus is simply the vehicle to a better marriage or more adjusted kids or a more fulfilling career and a more prosperous life and a life of making one's dreams come true as Jesus kind of cheers you on from the corner. Where does Jesus promise any of that? Instead he says, I'll give you life, and I'll give it in abundance, but that abundant life sometimes looks like a cross. I'll give you greatness, he says, but greatness looks like washing feet. I'll give you fulfillment, but fulfillment is defined by attachment to me, not in the abundance of one's possession or through worry-free relationships. I will make you new, but sometimes that looks like strained relationships with people who still live for this world. This is a paradox. Following Jesus is hard and demanding, but it's the best way to live. This is why Lewis's allegory of Aslan is so profound, and why the one scene that sticks out with everybody is when Mr. Beaver says that he is not safe, but he's good. It's both. That's how Jesus 
is and how he'll give you fulfillment, but it will be in such a way that you actually don't need fulfillment in anything else because you realize he's all you need. In him is fullness. Listen to me. In Jesus is fullness, not in Jesus plus something else. Him and him alone. And so when it's hard, when the way is narrow, it's worth it because you have him. You get him. And you set your eyes upon him as your prize and champion and jewel. And if even if you lose everything else in this world, you could never lose him. Because once he grips you, he will never let you go. Jesus tells us not only that the door is narrow, he says that many will seek to enter, do you see? But will not be able to get in. And here's the thing, right? If people fail to enter the narrow door, that is, if people fail to be saved, it is not because God is unwilling to admit them, but that they refuse to enter on the terms in which entrance is possible. Do you see? There's no injustice with God. Those who find themselves on the outside of the kingdom do so by their own initiative. Jesus in this picture is clearly the master of the house. And so he's the one who decides when the door is open and who can get in. If he opens the door and says, this is how you get in, and people reject it because they want an alternative way that they think is best, they can't cry foul when entrance is denied them and they're cast out. So many people in our world want to say, and people you know, this is how I think salvation should be procured. And so many people want to say, this is how I think following Jesus should look like. But Jesus is sovereign over the door, not people. Jesus defines what it looks like to get in, not fallen humanity. Jesus decides what it looks like to follow him, not arrogant sinners. But when entrance is denied to people, no one could say, I didn't deserve this. The only people who could say, I didn't deserve this, are the ones who are granted entry. I didn't deserve to be cast out. Actually, my friend, you did deserve to be cast out. That's all you deserve. What you didn't deserve was to be brought into the kingdom. That's why it's called grace. And Charles Spurgeon said, if any of you want to know what I preach every day and any stranger should say, give me a summary of his doctrine, say this. He preaches salvation, all of grace and damnation, all of sin. He gives God all the glory for every soul that is saved, but he won't have it that God is to blame for any man that is damned. Peter Kreft said the national anthem in hell is, I did it my way. Because that's what damnation comes to in the end. Not that God was unwilling to save us, but that we were unwilling to be saved and bow the knee to his Christ who is the only way of salvation. If we have a better way than Jesus, then we're carving a path to hell. See, like we talked about at the beginning, Christianity is the only religion that says that not all paths equally lead to God. And Christianity says that because Jesus says that. Christianity doesn't say, hey, you know, try real hard and be a good person. You know, make your bad scales out, make sure your bad scales aren't outweighed by your good scales and you'll get into heaven in the end. Does Christianity say that? All these other religions, and even some professing Christians think like this, picture life as just like climbing up a mountain. 
How high can you get on the mountain of your good deeds and your accomplishments and your morality? Well, actually, it doesn't matter how high you are when you die, as long as you're up there somewhere, right? You're good to go. The summit is wherever you decide it is. Just climb the mountain or the ladder and you'll be fine. That's what we're told. God knows you tried real hard. He knows you were sincere and he knows you weren't as bad as like serial killers. So don't sweat it. Is that what Christianity says? No. You want to hear a bummer? Here's a bummer. According to the State of Theology survey that's conducted every two years by Legionnaire and Lifeway Research, 56% of professing evangelicals agree with this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions. 56%. And that's up from 42% two years prior. I'm not sure where they got that because that's not what Jesus says. Nor is the rest of Scripture. It says that your good will never outweigh your bad. Even if you had a thousand lifetimes, your bad scale would hang so low that it would go subterrane. It says that you haven't made it past the first rung of the ladder. It says you're camping at the bottom of the mountain. You can't even see the summit. It says that God came down past the ladder, past the mountain, kicked your scales over. It says that he took on flesh and lived the life you failed to live and died the death you should have died. So that entrance is based on his record and not yours. Your part is to repent and give him allegiance. That's how you get into the door. But he supplies the ticket. He pays the entry fee. <laughs> he throws out your ledger and looks at his own in your place instead. Robert Capone said, in Jesus' death and resurrection, the whole test-passing, brownie-point-earning rigmarole of the human race has been canceled for lack of interest on God's part. It's about his willingness to give you entrance, not on your ability to earn entrance. And he's willing, but you must come in the way he says, or else you'll find yourself on the outside and no one is to blame but you. If he's willing and we refuse to repent and submit, it's our own fault. Let's press this image in some more. If someone invites you to a banquet and they say, here's where it is and how to get in, and you don't go, or you enter even as the ho or don't enter, even as the host stands there holding the door open, who's to blame? If you go and say, I don't like the door, I'll stay outside, who's to blame? The host did their part, they invited, they made the meal, they set the table, they even went out and held the door open. The host can't be blamed for your non-entrance, only you can take that blame, and so it is here. But see, Jesus says that many will be surprised when they are denied entry. But why are they denied? Because they saw, thought, you see what it says? Simply having heard Jesus teach and even eating and drinking in his presence was enough to get in. They thought proximity to Jesus was enough. Some thought their ethnicity as sons of Abraham was enough. But they went to the door and they found it not only closed, but Jesus cast them out. The problem is, says Daryl Bach, that it's not familiarity with Jesus, but response to him that is desired. And these people were familiar with him, but they didn't respond to him. 
Here's something we need to understand. Simply knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing him. I'm going to say that again. Simply knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing him. Not even proximity to Jesus is enough to gain admittance. Judas was physically close to Jesus. Judas heard Jesus' teaching. Judas ate and drank with Jesus. Judas served with Jesus. Judas slept near Jesus. Judas lived with Jesus. Judas saw Jesus heal, and none of that saved him. Bach says outward contact with the message and person of Jesus counts for nothing. Inward reception is everything. Neither work nor involvement is the point, only relationship to Jesus. This is why, you guys agree with me? This is one of the most frightening passages in all the Bible. There are people who know a lot about Jesus, who have heard a lot of Sunday school lessons and sermons, who have portions of the Bible memorized, who could list the books of the Bible in order, who served in church ministries, who walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and got baptized and put Christian stuff on their Facebook pages and tell people they are Christian and maybe they go to church and maybe they're members and they will stand outside the door and they will knock and Jesus will say, I don't know you. Is that not frightening to you? Why will he say that? Because they don't actually know Jesus. They knew about him. They did religious deeds. They did the required rituals. They claimed closeness with him, but they never actually repented and bent their knee. They called him Lord, but they never followed him as such. External religious deeds and impressiveness get you nowhere if you truly don't know Jesus. Tom Schreiner says, the shutting out is not arbitrary. They are not allowed in because evil dominates their lives, because they have given themselves over to their own selfish will. They have not truly known Jesus. You guys remember when Christian and Hopeful in Pilgrim's Progress were getting closer to the celestial city. There was at one point they met a man named Ignorance. Ignorance was, he was nicely dressed, polished, well-mannered. He's confident, proud, boasting in his whole host of religious achievements. And Christian asks him, how do you suppose you'll get into the celestial city? And this is what ignorance says. He says, I have lived a good life. And I have repaid every man to whom I owe debt. And I pray and I fast and I pay tithes and I give alms. And he says, I have a good heart. And so Christian tells him, you know, none of that will get you into the celestial city. (laughs) He said, besides, the Bible says man's hearts are evil. Which ignorance puts his fist on his hip and says, I, I, I will never believe that my heart is bad. But the man is still so deceived that he believes he will get into the celestial city through his reputation and his deeds, and even if the Bible says different. Ignorance says he believes and trusts Jesus, to which Christian says at one point, but how? How could you think you must believe in Christ when you don't see your need of him? Well, we fast forward, ignorance gets to the celestial city. And he goes up to the gate. He knocks. A man peers over and says, where did you come from and what is your desire? Ignorance says, I have eaten and drank in the presence of the king. 
and he has taught in our streets. Then they asked him, do you have your certificate so that you might give it to us and we'll show it to the king? But ignorance, he fumbles around in his pockets, he found none. Don't you have one, asked the man at the gate, and ignorance had no answer, so the king ordered him to be carried away and cast out. This is what the narrator says. I realize that there is a way to hell, even from the gate of heaven. Is not what Jesus is saying? Ignorance thought his religious deeds would get him into the celestial city. He knew of Jesus. He heard Jesus' teaching. He said he trusted Christ. He did things with good motives. He even ate and drank in the presence of the king, but what? He didn't have the certificate, which is given when one goes to the cross and admits their sin and has their burden taken away. He never did that, so he was cast away. How many people will suffer the same fate? Let's be real. We live in the Mecca of cultural nominal Christianity. Almost everyone in this area, almost everyone you know says that they're a Christian. Almost everyone you know or meet says they're going to heaven when they die. And what are they basing that off of? Could be because they walked an aisle when they were young. Raise their hand. Could be because they prayed a prayer after someone. Could be because they were baptized. Could be because they're members of a church. Doesn't matter if they attend, right? Their name is on the roll. That's good enough. Could be because they come from a family who said they're Christians. Could be because they went to or currently go to church. Could be because they do their civic duties and are good patriots. Could be because they're nice people and mean well. Could be because they try hard to be good this or that. Could be because they think they're better than the worst people they know. Could be because they know a bunch of Bible stories. Could be because they believe in a notion of God. Could be because they pray before meals. Could be because they know about Jesus and may even claim to love him. Could be all kinds of different reasons. But none of those things will do, will they? If that is the basis with which we are relying on to gain entrance into the narrow door, then Jesus gives us grim news. He will say, I don't know you. Listen. I stand up here every week and I preach you, Jesus, from the Bible, right? But if I stand before Jesus at the end of my life and say, didn't I preach the Bible in your name? But don't know Jesus truly? He will rightly say, I don't know you. Being a pastor isn't enough to gain me entry into the narrow door. Teaching the Bible isn't enough to gain me entry in the narrow door. Knowing facts about Jesus and telling other people those facts isn't enough. I must actually know Jesus not about him. I need to know him. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? In fact, the fact that I preach and teach means I am even more on the hook and have even less of an excuse. He will judge me severely if I don't truly know him, and he should. And my friend, have you heard the Bible taught? You have heard the gospel. You have heard the truths about Jesus. You have heard that He is the only way to life because He is life. You could have taught Sunday school. You could have been on a committee. You could have been a deacon or gone to a bunch of Bible studies and served at one time in the church, but that doesn't amount to salvation. What it means is that you have no excuse because to whom much is given, much is required. Jesus' original audience made them ideal candidates to be included in the kingdom. Not only were they of the line of Abraham, not only did they have the prophet's writings, but they were present for Jesus' ministry. 
But they ignored the prophets. They ignored Jesus. And these members of the nation will become outsiders while Gentiles are included. They'll have to watch from the outside. As Gentiles from north and south and east and west who have no ethnic tie to Jesus sit at the banquet table with the patriarchs of Israel and they will weep and they will gnash their teeth knowing they could have been included but refused. Jesus is saying here to Israel, you of all people should know the truths of the gospel. You of all people should know that I am he who was prophesied. You of all people should see that I am the one who Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and all the prophets pointed to because you have Bibles and you've been taught this. You of all people should be in the kingdom, but you're trusting in other things, even your ethnicity, and that's not good enough. You need to have repented. You need to be saved by grace. It's like Tim Keller said, you know, to get grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. Most of us come with our recommendation letters, our resume, our morality, or our money. All of us want to come to Jesus. This is what he's getting at with our self-justification, but he says none of that will do. If it would do, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to come at all. We need to let go of all that we think will justify ourselves before God because we could very well think we're doing all kinds of things for God or to make God happy, and really we're just doing it for ourselves or going through the religious motions and could be as lost as every overtly wicked person we could think of, and our fate will be the same unless we repent. Scott McKnight said, the gate is not just mild association with Jesus or some kind of general affiliation, but a radical commitment to Jesus as one who is King and Lord who shapes all of life for us. To enter the narrow gate is to enter into a relationship with Jesus who really is King and Lord who saves and rules and the relationship with Jesus entails following him. Friend, there is no automatic entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling us, do not presume upon grace. Do not presume upon status. Do not presume upon deeds. Do not presume upon anything at all. Nothing on earth will gain you entrance into the narrow door. Jesus alone is the door. Only through him will you see the great banquet. The entry is one that's a struggling one, but worth it. No one strolls into the narrow door. You remember Dante's famous poem called Inferno, don't you? I bet the line you remember is the one I'm going to mention, which is that when you were entering into hell, there's a sign. And it says, abandon hope, all ye who enter. Because once you're in, there's no escape. But let me add something to Dante. There might as well be a sign at the narrow door that says, abandon pride, all ye who enter. Because the shedding of any idea of deserving or earning must go away if one is to receive the gift that Jesus is offering. Don't you see? You know, Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a minister he knew who told him, the minister said he had attended the bedside of a very proud woman of considerable wealth. And the woman said to the minister as she was dying, this is what she said. She said, do you think, sir, that when I am in heaven... Such a person as Betty, my maid, will be in the same place as I am. I never could endure her company here. 
She's a good servant in her way, but I am sure I could not put up with her in heaven. No, madame, said the minister, I do not suppose you will ever be where Betty will be. He knew Betty to be one of the most humble and most consistent Christian women anywhere, and he might have told her, proud mistress, that in the sight of God, meekness is preferable to majesty. At Spurgeon, the Lord Jesus in the day of his coming will wipe out all such distinctions as may be very properly exist on earth, though they cannot be recognized beyond the skies. But here's what else Jesus wants us to know about entering the narrow door. It will eventually be shut. It will eventually be shut. You've surely noticed the intensity and urgency has been present in Jesus' teaching over the last few chapters. Have you noticed that? His warning that the door will close soon should not surprise anyone. If you just look back, think about a couple examples. Jesus said that we should fear the one who could cast our bodies into hell. He said he must, we must not be like the rich fool who planned to build storehouses for all his stuff, but then he died that night and was judged. He has told us that we need to stay dressed for action to keep our lamps burning because he might come back at any moment. And what will we, he see us doing when he returns? He's told us we, need to be interpreting, we don't need to be interpreting the signs uh, of the weather, but rather the signs of the time more than we do the weather. He has told us to settle debts with God because if we die and stand before him before we do, he will require every last penny. He said that a tower can fall on us anytime, so now is the time to repent. He said the vine dresser is looking to see if trees bear fruit, and then they have a short time and one more chance to produce fruit and keep in repentance, or they will be chopped down. Now he says, the door is open, but it won't be open forever. God is gracious and kind and patient, but eventually his patience will run out. The door is open because of Jesus, but at some point, Jesus will decide that that's enough, and he will close it, and it will never be opened again. When will Jesus close the door? Hmm? Do you know? You don't know. Could it be tonight? Could it? Could it be tomorrow? Could it be a month? Could it be in a year? You know, you have no idea, neither do I. Would you procrastinate? and wait to respond, presuming that the door won't shut anytime soon. You want to take that chance? You think you'll get a deathbed conversion? Why would you think that? How often are people given that chance? If you won't believe now, there's little chance that you'll believe later. But isn't Jesus telling us that those who procrastinate or those who refuse to pass through the narrow gate will be left outside? What a sorrowful picture Jesus gives us. Can you picture this? What's our Lord saying? He's showing us men and women who have rejected His narrow way, even if they thought they knew Him. People have rejected His narrow way in favor of a life of self-willed devotion. People have trusted in themselves. People have presumed to have merited their way into heaven through their own goodness and morality and record. People who sat in churches and sang hymns and choruses and listened to sermons and went to Bible studies and volunteered and voted the right way and told people they loved Jesus but never knew Him at all. And they'll walk up to this door that's narrow, and it will be shut, and they will knock. And they'll say, Lord, open the door to us. 
And Jesus will say to them, the worst thing that a person can ever hear, depart from me, you workers of evil. And they will say, but Lord, we did all these things. And they were good and they were right. And we meant well. And we were nice. And we told people we were Christians. And we did our religious and civic duties. And we even knew all about you. And Jesus will say, I don't know you. And we'll cast them out forever. That should do something to you. Friend, I beg you, hear me. This is the most important thing you will ever hear. This is the most serious thing you will ever hear. And the fragile nature of life might mean this is the last time you will ever hear this warning. Do not presume. Do not self-justify. Do not procrastinate. You must go to Christ and you must go now. Stop waiting. Give up your excuses and your procrastinations and cast yourself upon Christ of the narrow door. He will receive you and if you come with your empty hands and call upon Him and you know people and you will see people this very day who this is their fate unless someone tells them and warns them. What are you waiting for? You say, Vaughn, I've done that. Cast myself on Jesus. Well, friend, can anyone tell? Do you live a narrow door life? Is your life easy and comfortable? Is your life mainly about you? Are you submitting to Jesus as Lord or just calling him Lord while retaining the reins of your life? Have you settled for a nominal cultural Christianity that keeps Jesus on the fringes of your life as you go through religious motions? Do you imagine he will let you in through the narrow door that you reject? Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. The call is not perfection. I'm asking you if you are striving. Are you striving towards the narrow way? That's what Jesus calls for. He will save you by grace alone, through his work alone, but that grace that saves is never alone. He's calling you to a better way. Are you following? A man came up to Jesus and asked him if the number of those saved will be few. Maybe you want to know too. But Jesus' answer is this. Whatever their number, respond to me and be sure that you're among them. Because racial and spatial proximity to me is no guarantee of salvation. So you might have questions like the man or woman in verse 23, but Jesus is asking you one back. He wants you to ask yourself in this moment, am I entering through the narrow door? Are you? That's the most important question you will ever answer. Come, you sinners, the old hymn says, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. What else does it say? Come, you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. 